the slides, the pictures of the slides are in, in the files, but if you rather want the actual PowerPoint or you have a question or anything like that, then that's my email address. Just feel free to call me um, about it. And I want to say a little bit about how, how this talk came about, why I ended up doing a talk about this. I um, never learned about the process of textual criticism and how the Bible is put together practically um, until my fourth year at seminary. And when I learned this, I thought that it was just so wonderful. And I was a little bit upset that I hadn't come across it earlier, that the process was never explained to me. And I found that that is the case with a lot of people in the church. Unless you go to seminary and you study the languages, you often don't get taught the process of how it is that we have a text in front of us. It just doesn't sort of fall out of the sky. And so... um, I mentioned to my husband one day that I think that this should be a talk that we do when we go around teaching apologetics because it's part of our defense for the scriptures. And um, he said, well, why don't you do the talk? And so that's how I ended up doing this. And so for me, it's um, this textual criticism, as I'll say later on, is a real science and it's an art and some very clever people work on it, spend all of their lives on it. But it's something that we as lay people in the church can understand and that we should know for two reasons because it gives us confidence in our own scriptures and also it gives us confidence to share with people who perhaps don't trust the word as their sole authority and so I think those are two very good reasons to understand the process of textual criticism so um, I start to talk out by quoting um, a, a professor by the name of Bart Ehrman he is a professor of religious studies at the University of North Carolina and he is considered to be a leading New Testament scholar. He's written and edited over 25 books, including three college textbooks. So if your child goes to Chapel Hill and takes some, some or other course in religion, he or she will probably sit in Ehrman's class at some point. Um, he's um, achieved uh, acclaim on popular level, um, authoring four New York Times bestsellers, so people in the pews read him as well, it's not just students. And his work focuses on textual criticism of the New Testament, the historical Jesus, and in his view, the evolution of early Christianity. How did Christians come to believe what we believe today? Now, in his very famous book, uh, Misquoting Jesus, the story behind who changed the Bible and why, he writes this. Oh, I'll talk about that later. Um, He says this. Not only do we not have the originals, we don't have the first copies of the originals. We don't even have copies of the copies of the originals or copies of the copies of the copies of the originals. What we have are copies made later, much later. In most instances, they are copies made many centuries later. And these copies all differ from one another in many thousands of places. As we will see later in this book, these copies differ from one another in so many places that we don't even know how many differences there are. Possibly it is easiest to put it in comparative terms. There are more differences among our manuscripts than there are words in the New Testament. Um, And then sort of to set up my challenge further, so I I give this to to show people that this is what's being said. This is what's being taught to first-year college, university students in their religion classes about the New Testament. So another way that I try and show the challenge is to ask people to turn to Luke chapter 22 in their Bibles if they have them with them. Um, And then we read verse 41 to 45. If you want to maybe look it up and see um, just at the passage, it's more about (coughs) what's at the bottom of the page than really the verses itself. So this is um, Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane and um, he, uh, he withdrew from them about a stone's throw, and he knelt down and began to pray. This is verse 41, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. Now an angel from heaven appeared to him, strengthening him. And being in agony, he was praying very fervently, and his sweat became like drops of blood falling down upon the ground. When he rose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping from sorrow. And then what I ask people is, at um, verse... 43 and 45, who has a footnote? You have a little um, A or B referring you to the bottom of the page where there's a footnote concerning that verse. Do you have one there? Uh, no, ma'am. Okay. Let me check. Do you, do you want to check in yours and see? I got a MacArthur, so I'm sure there's something. There. This is probably... <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> About every word, huh? Luke 22, verse 43, 44. There's usually a little A or a B and... 
I got a U. Okay, and what is the explanation of the little A at the bottom? Do you have a a reason for why it's there? Verses are related only by Luke, the physician. Okay. All right, so he's saying Luke Luke is the only one who has this in his gospel. And then usually in the text, you'll have a little note that says something um, like this. Some early manuscripts do not have verse for, verses 43 and 44. Do you I have that? I've got that. That's a one. Okay, so that's marked with the one. So marked with the footnote. So they're telling you that there are manuscripts, copies of the Bible, that do not have these verses. You might have come across other places. If you look at the end of Mark, quite a large number of verses in the end of Mark will have a footnote and they'll say that these verses are not found in some of the older manuscripts. Okay. And then I usually say to people, well, now consider what we say about the Bible. Um, we say the Bible is the inerrant, meaning having no mistakes, unchanging word of God. And so, should I believe this? If Ehrman says there are many, 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 many mistakes in the copies that we have, and if my Bible itself says in a footnote that there are some manuscripts that don't have these verses, what do I do with that? What, what does that mean? Most importantly, should I trust the Bible as the authority in my life? Should I, should I build my life on it if there are these differences? Okay. And so now, if you've never considered these little footnotes at the end, or if you've seen them and they've made you slightly uncomfortable but you haven't paid much attention, then what I want to try and do in the talk today is to show you why, why, why those are really important and why it's a good thing that they are there and why it should actually encourage you um, in your faith in the Scriptures. Um, or your, your trust in the scriptures and in that what they say is um, worth sort of staking your life on. Okay, so um, what we're going to be talking about, the big name for it is textual criticism. And I give a couple of definitions. Um, it's the science and art that seeks to determine the most reliable wording of a text. Okay, and just to say it's a science because this discipline is governed by rules. There are certain ways that it's done. But it's also an art because the rules can't be just rigidly applied. You have to be artful in the way that you do that. Um, and so it becomes, it, it, you get better at, at it over time. Even though you know the rules, you start seeing how to apply them. Um, Textual criticism doesn't just apply to the Bible. It applies to any ancient text, okay? And there's another definition. The study of any written composition, so any written book or piece of information, of which the original is survived by copies that contain variants. So it means we don't have the thing that was written in the person's hand in the original anymore. It's gone. We have copies made by other people, of that original thing. And we look at those copies and we try to determine what the original said. Okay? That's the art of textual criticism. That's the study of textual criticism. Okay? So to the Bible, textual criticism is this the study of the original wording in the Bible. And it attempts to discover as nearly as possible what the original text of Scripture says as written by the original authors. So Bart Ehrman is actually correct when he says that we don't have any of the originals. Okay? Um, they don't exist anymore. We don't have the letters of Paul written in his own hand. We don't have the Gospel of Luke written in his own hand on a piece of papyrus or on a piece of vellum. Okay? Those things have since disintegrated. They've been lost. Um, time has taken its toll on them. And so... Um, We don't actually have those original copies. What we have are copies of the copies. You'll recall when Paul sends his letters to the churches, he'll often say to them, 
make sure that you pass this letter on. And you know that they had scribes who sat down and as soon as that letter arrived, made copies of what Paul had sent them and sent them to the other churches. And before long, throughout all of the known world, northern Africa, parts into Europe, and then definitely the, the Middle East, copies were circulating of these letters. Okay, made in those days, of course, by hand on all these various different materials. Those copies we call manuscripts. The original, as written by Paul himself, or sometimes in some of the letters it seems that he had a scribe and he was dictating and this guy was writing down what he said, those we call the autographs. They were the ones written in their actual hand by the actual person. And then we have the manuscripts, the copies that were made later. So what textual criticism does is it takes all of the manuscripts that we can find, these ancient documents, and we look at them, and we look at where they differ, and we try to decide what is the most, what is most likely to have been what Paul said originally in his letter that we now don't have anymore. So I'll give you an example. If um, I did my talk this morning, I stood in front of you, and we told everybody, take notes, as many notes as you can. In fact, if you write fast enough, if you like those people in the courts keeping the transcripts, um, put down everything I say. Now afterwards, we take in all the bits of paper. Will they all be exactly the same? No, somebody missed out a word there, somebody I misspoke, somebody heard a word, somebody heard me using Brad Gammer and they corrected my grammar for me as they wrote. So they'll be different. But from taking all of these copies, you could look at them and you could probably come to a very good idea of what it was that I actually said. If there's only one co- copy that has a word and that sounds like another word which all the other copies have, then it's more likely that I use you know, that word that all the other copies had and not the one word, this is the guy who heard me wrong type of thing. So that's the way, broadly speaking, that textual criticism works. Now let's just talk about the autographs, the originals for a moment. It's not strange that we don't have the originals anymore. There's no need to be concerned about that. Um... um there are several reasons for that. The, the oldest manuscripts were written on papyrus. Have you ever seen or held papyrus? It's very flimsy. It's, 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 it's not even as durable as the paper we have today, and we know that paper don't, doesn't last. Paper gets wet or gets in a fire or it just gets old and goes yellow and eventually turns to dust. So it's not strange that we don't have um, papyrus copies anymore. Um, they were just not made on durable surfaces. The colouring fades, the inks, you know, were made from natural substances that would fade over time. And then also, I, I don't think the early church necessarily thought of these documents as inspired and holy. They were just the letters from Paul, for example, telling them about what to do in the church. And so they would use them much like we use documents today. We'd read them and pass them on. And um, they weren't putting them in glass cases and preserving them from the beginning. They were using them. And with use, of course, they fade and get old and eventually um, don't exist anymore. Also, during the spread of the church, when these manuscript copies were made and when the originals were circulating, these were turbulent times. Christians were under persecution. Um, and shortly after, Jews were under, uh, under persecution from the Romans. So you see um, throughout Jewish history, the temple being destroyed, synagogue, synagogues being burned, Christians who are now having to you know, run for their lives. It's not ideal situations to preserve a text. So obviously things are going to go missing and you know, um, get, be destroyed in the, in the process. And um, some, would, some people would even argue, and I, I think there's a point to this, that it's perhaps God's providence that we don't have those originals. Can you imagine if we had an original copy of the Gospel of John, written in John's own hand? The temptation for um, worship of that document, or the temptation to have, have power and the temptation to change it, especially on certain doctrinal issues that you might want to force the issue. And so now, we don't have those originals. We can only come to what the originals were by looking at the manuscripts. And so there's no, there's no danger of either the original being worshipped or the original being changed. Nobody can change the original today because it doesn't exist. Okay? So in a sense... I know people wouldn't worship it I mean, after all, you find the Virgin Mary in a piece of toast. <laughs> you know they yes. wouldn't worship the Okay. And so um, some people would say it's actually a very good thing that we don't have these originals. So to say, this is not a problem. So we have handwritten copies of the 66 books of the Bible. Manuscripts is the fancy word for that. Um, the oldest, um, the, the Greek manuscripts, Now, the, just to say, the, the New Testament was written in Greek. 
It was a language much like English today, spoken throughout the known world that everybody would understand. So even though the apostles were Hebrews, were Jews, they probably wrote in the Greek so that it was easy to disseminate and so that the Gentiles could understand it as well. So they were written in Greek. We have around 6,000 um, Greek manuscripts of the New Testament at the moment. So 6,000 pieces of really old papyrus or vellum um, that date back to antiquity that we can compare to try and get to what was the original text. So 6,000 of those in the New Testament. The oldest manuscripts of the Old Testament are part of the Dead Sea Scrolls, and they predate Christ by 250 years, roughly. So 250 BC, the oldest ones that we have in the Old Testament documents. And actually, new, t- new manuscripts are, being, are still being uncovered today. There's some really interesting events happening right now in the scholarly world on this where they found some very ancient biblical manuscripts that were used to wrap some artifacts and some tombs, sort of like we use newspaper to wrap things when we put them away it was actually biblical manuscripts that they used to wrap these things with and so they're buying up the artifacts not because they're interested in the artifact they're actually interested in the wrapping paper this, these are very old manuscripts and so that's, that's exciting to watch that research unfold so very quickly I'm going to show you some of the oldest manuscripts that we have. I can't spend enough time on this. This is a talk in its own right, and I'll recommend some books um, that you can read if you want to learn more about them. Here is um, some of our um, Old Testament, ancient Old Testament ones. Okay, um, oldest copies of biblical texts are found on silver amulets. Obviously, the silver just lasts much, much longer. Okay, this one is from the mid seventh century BC, and it contains part of Numbers two, uh, Numbers six, verse twenty-two to twenty-seven, and they're written in a Paleo um, Hebrew script. So that's part of how we determine how old it is by looking at the type of writing that they use, because the writing sort of changes over, over time. Okay, so that's a very old one. Here are um, uh, this is a picture of the Isaiah scroll that was found. Um, this part of the Dead Sea Scrolls. Now, I don't know if you know the story about the Dead Sea Scrolls, about the little shepherd boy who found them. Prior to this find, um, the earliest documents of the Old Testament that we had, the manuscripts, only dated from the 9th century AD. So they were old. They were not all that old. They were only a th- almost a thousand years after Christ. That's the first actual manuscripts we had of the Old Testament. Now that's a long time between when the Old Testament was finally canonized about a hundred years before Christ's life. um, A a thousand years later, that's a long time. It's a big gap. We needed some manuscripts to fill in there for us. It's very long, far away. And so what happened is they discovered in these Dead Sea Scrolls um, some some of these uh, manuscripts actually predate Christ, or like I said, 250 BC. So now we have some late manuscripts from 900 AD. We have some very early ones from 250 BC. So what can we do? We can compare them and we can see whether there has been changes over time, where the changes are and whether they are significant. So the Dead Sea Scrolls was a very important find for biblical criticism. Okay. Every Old Testament book was in there except for the book of Esther and it dates between the 3rd century BC and the 1st century AD, these documents. So they're very early in comparison to what was there before. Okay. That was an important find for us. Hello. <laughs> and so um, we're just going through some of uh, the manuscript evidences for the Bible. Um, we're on the Old Testament ones and... Um, other old ones are um, the Nash papyrus, this piece of papyrus that you can see dates from 169 BC, and then all these different ones. Um, there were there were Jewish families who were responsible for copying the text. This was actually um, a very important position, especially for the Old Testament. These scribes were trained from the age of young boys, and it was literally what they spent their days doing, working on these um, Torah scrolls. Um, and on parchment, would write them and would count out every letter to make sure that they were copying correctly, that sort of thing. Okay, so those are the... Um, then you also have secondary sources. So you had people for the Old Testament who did not speak Hebrew, the Samaritans. So they had their own version of the first five books of the Pentateuch. Okay, And you have um, the Aramaic Pentateuch, when the Israelites get taken to... by, um, by the... Ara- by the... Yes the people 
<laughs> in Daniel's time, okay, and they start talking, there's a translation of the of the Pentateuch, of the first five books of the Bible, of the law. Many of the of the Jews returning out of um, exile. thank you, thank you, out of exile were actually speaking Aramaic, not Hebrew, and so they needed the scriptures in Aramaic. So you have these translated copies that you can also compare. You have manuscripts of those. And so um, you have, for example, the Septuagint, which is the Greek version of the Old Testament. Like I said, during the New Testament times, this was probably the Old Testament Bible that many of the people were reading because they spoke Greek. They couldn't read the Hebrew scrolls. They had their own Greek copies of it, and that's called the Septuagint. So we have copies of those. All this to say, there are copies of all these different documents that we can compare for the Old Testament. It's a whole science on exactly how many there are. There is the Codex Sinaiticus. Codex is just a fancy name for when they first started putting them in book form as opposed to the scrolls. And so this is made out of vellum, animal skin, and so it's much more durable. This is um, the Codex Sinaiticus. It's the oldest copy of the whole Bible that we have. You can actually go see it in the in the British Museum, um, uh, the British Library, and it's written in Greek. You can go and find your passage that you want to be reading, and you, you can look at the Greek. And if you see on the previous slide there, it's um, dated to about the 5th century, so 450 AD, somewhere around there. Um, so we can go and compare the text that we have today with that. All right? That's sort of the point here. Now, for the New Testament, there are some papyrus manuscripts. This is the oldest one. It's called P52. I'll just point that out. When you see a small um, italicized letter P with a number, that's sort of the name that they've given to this manuscript. So if a textual critic says P52, everybody knows that he's talking about the John Rylands papyrus that has a section from the Gospel of John on it. Um, and so this is John 18, verse 31 to 34, and on the back it has some parts of verse 37 and 38. Okay? So what we can now do is we can take that section from John from this really old piece of papyrus and we can compare it to manuscripts that, that come later. Now, if you just um, look at it, it's dated A.D. 125. So this manuscript, this copy, was written around 125 A.D., most scholars reckon that John wrote his gospel in about 90 AD. He was the oldest of the apostles and of the disciples. And so that's only a 35-year gap okay, between when the letter was actually written and the first manuscripts that we have, which in antiquity... There's no other document that compares, not the writings of Homer, not the writings of Plato, not the writings of Pliny, not the writings of Josephus. Nobody has that sort of manuscript evidence so close to the original, manuscripts that are so close in age to the original. Okay, and then you have what we call the uncials or the magiscals, the Codex Sinaiticus, that big book that I just showed you there, is written in this form. You'll see it looks like a sort of a capital letter Greek. And they made, what's interesting, there are no spaces between the words. Mm-hmm. So you really have to know the Greek to understand what it is that the sentence is saying. And you can easily sort of misread it. That's the point. That's the way they wrote it, that sense. And so we call those uncials or magiscals. It's just for the type of writing. Um, the Codex Sinaiticus is a famous one. And how these will be named, you'll see in the black there, they'll have um, uh, a letter and then a numeral as one. So when you say Alpha 1, everybody knows you're talking about the Codex Sinaiticus, which is in the British Library. Or if I say B3, then they know I'm talking about the Codex Vaticanus, which is another codex that you can find in the Vatican. Um, <coughs> and so those are pretty cool. And then we get to the min- minuscules. Now, by this time, the writing has changed. You can see it starts looking more like our cursive, and there are spaces between the words, and there's more of a sort of capital letter, small letter going on. And so these are called the minuscules. Um, They date from the 9th to the 15th century AD. Um, And there are close to 3,000 minuscules of the Gospels. This is a copy of um, the the, the Gospel of Luke. You can see they they went, you know, this was a real art form for these these guys copying copying these manuscripts. Uh, This is from from the beginning of Luke. Okay, then you also have lectionaries. Now, um, in some of your more liturgical churches, you'll have a book of readings that the church follows throughout the year. Every, every Sunday, there's a reading from the Old Testament and the New Testament. The ancient church had that as well. So this is not scripture in the order that we have it, but it's excerpts from scripture for every day of gathering. And so what you can do is you can compare those to the manuscripts that we have, because these are quotations out of scripture very early, some from as early as the 5th as the century, uh, century. And so you'll see they have that funny looking um, italic 
L for lectionary. We'll come back to why that is lectionary, why, why I'm showing you those black names. They become important names. And then there are also ancient versions. Again, this just means the translations. The New Testament was translated into languages such as Latin, Syriac, Egyptian, Armenian, Georgian, Ethiopic, Gothic, and Arabic very early on. So you can find these translations and you can compare. Now, of course, that's not quite as good as having the actual Greek because with translation, there's always a little bit of interpretation going on. You can't just translate word for word because then it becomes absurd. But still, these can be used. And then one of my favorites is the church fathers. We have the writings of the early church fathers and throughout their writings, they quote scripture. In fact, um, one scholar did the research where he compared all of their writings and found that with the exception of 11 verses, you can find the whole of the New Testament in the quotations of the church fathers. Hmm. And so they quoted very extensively from it. And so we can compare that with the copies of scripture that we have from other um, so very quickly that was, like I said, this is a whole science and it's amazing to read up about where these documents are and how they were found. Some of them is really have interesting stories of how we came about them and that we are finding more. These, this is, these are the tools of the textual critic's work. He wants these manuscripts, he or she wants these manuscripts to work from because that's how the comparison happens. Now, uh, Dr. David Allen Black teaches um, at Southeastern, and he says this, as we have seen, the Greek witnesses to the text of the New Testament number around 5,000, numbers are closer to 6,000 now, ranging between the 2nd and the 18th century. So it's a really widespread of manuscripts as well. Some very old ones, some that are much more recent, and that's good because we can compare them over time. In comparison, manuscripts of the Hebrew Old Testament number perhaps half as many, so there aren't as many of the, of, of the Old Testament, Though the text of these manuscripts is more uniform than that exhibited by the manuscripts of the New Testament. So we spoke about the Jews and how particular they were about copying theirs, and so that shows up. There aren't as many differences. Moreover, the earliest surviving copies of the New Testament are much closer to the date of the original writing than is the case with almost any other piece of ancient literature. Okay. You might have heard this before if you've heard talks on the reliability of the Bible. They do the comparison and they say, I think the earliest copy we have of Homer's writing, you don't see a manuscript of Homer till way after, and I think it's 250 years after he wrote. And so, of course, there's just more time for the manuscript to corrupt um, as, it, as it goes. Okay, so what's interesting, though, if you look at this quote, Dr. Black implies something. He says, though the text of these manuscripts, talking about the Old Testament manuscripts, is more uniform than that exhibited by the manuscripts of the New Testament. What he's implying there is that there are differences in the manuscripts. He's saying the New Testament manuscripts have more differences in them than the Old Testament manuscripts. And what that means is there are differences. So... Bart Ehrman is correct on two accounts, not just that we don't have the originals, but also that there are differences. And that's what we're going to spend the rest of our time looking at, these differences. Okay? The fancy name for the differences is a variant. So a variant is just a difference between manuscripts. If I take the Codex Sinaiticus and I take the John Ryland's piece of papyrus and I compare that section in John, if there are differences, then we call those variants. All right? So if you want to turn to John 1, verse 18, in your... Um, in your Bible. Um, this is the verse we're going to look at. Um, in the ESV it says, No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Okay. Does yours say something different? No man has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father, he hath declared him. Okay. And does it have a footnote? Um... No, ma'am. Okay. This is a okay. go-to. Okay. And so, did you notice the difference between yours and mine? Yes, ma'am. Yours said the only son. Mine said the only, God, the only God. No one has ever seen God, the only God. And yours said the only son. Okay. It says only begotten son. Okay. Very good. So, there's a, there's a difference there. Do, do you have a footnote? Um, so It'll be a one or a two? I've, I've, got, see, I've got A, Bs, and Cs. No, no, one or two? I don't see a Okay, for verse 18. And just a bunch of stuff referring over to the Exodus, okay. John, and Colossians. All right, so this is the, the variant that we're going to be looking at. I'll show you how it looks in just a minute. So here it is. This is, so what happens? 
the text will, you know, no, don't worry. It's not as bad as it looks. I, it, you, you're going to look at this and you're going to say, hey, I can do that. I promise. Okay. So how does it work? The, the English version of the Bible that we have in front of us, you know that that's not the way it, ca- it came down from the Lord. Yeah. Okay? It didn't just drop down, poof, here it is. English version, perfect, we can read it. Okay? It's come together over time. It was written, okay, let's take, we'll take the, the Gospel of John since that's what we're working. John wrote it down. And his Gospel was copied and disseminated to the churches for the believers. This is the story, the eyewitness testimony of John about the life of Jesus. And it came down through them to the church. And so copies of these copies of these copies were made. And so now, when scholars look at the Bible, they want to compile as close as possible to what they think was the original Greek text. Because that's what it was written in. So we look at all these Greek manuscripts, we put them together, and we compare them. That's what's happening here. Okay, comparison of different Greek manuscripts. Okay, so this is a comparison of about 34 manuscripts. Okay, and that's the way in which you find the sentence, the same verse in them. Now you can see there are 34 lines there. There's only about 10 lines. Okay, so clearly a bunch of them agreed. Mm-hmm. A bunch of them had exactly the same in them because we've whittled it down from 34 to 10 lines. Okay. Right. And so we're going to look at some of these differences. I'm going to show it to you. And even though you can't read the Greek, you'll see. You, you, can, you can pick them up because you can look at letters. All right. And so um, let me just get my notes ready here. So when here's what Bart Ehrman does. When he says there are many, 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 many differences. Okay. He counts... Um, Every one of these lines, I don't know, the is not working on me, as a difference. Okay. So if it would be something like, if he wrote his book, okay, the first print was perfect, in the second print of it, they made a typo. A million copies of that book is sold. Now we say there are a million errors in Ehrman's book, because there are a million copies of them out there that have the typo. And that's a million differences. No, really, in a sense, it's a difference in one place. There are a million copies with it in, but there's just a difference in one place. And so when Ehrman says there are 200,000 differences, okay, what we need to ask is, well, how many places is it? And it really only concerns about 10,000 places. Now, if you think about the number of words in the New Testament then 10,000 places isn't that many. And then you've got to ask, well, what kind of differences are these? Are they really important differences on which the faith stands and falls? Or are they insignificant ones? So I'm going to use this to illustrate you how the, diff- diff- the, um, the differences work. Okay? So, if you look at the vast majority of these differences or these variants are spelling differences... Word order differences, word stands in a different place, or minor grammatical differences. So I'm going to show you. In, dif- in number 1, 2, 16, and 17, so where are they? Um, there's number 1, 2, 16, and 17. Look <coughs> at that word carefully. The first one is sort of like an E and then sort of like a W. 100 has an E and then an O. Okay? In Greek, the W one is omega, you might have seen that before. That's the long O sound. Okay? And that one, the omicron, is the short O sound. Oh. Okay? So that counts as one difference. One author wrote the word with the long O. <coughs> one author wrote the word with the short O. Is any Greek person not going to understand the meaning of the word? Mm. No. They're going to understand what it says. It's just maybe a pronunciation difference or maybe the way they spelt the word changed over time, like we're seeing in the English language today. Like you Americans spell color with only an O and the British spell it with an O-U-R, right? It's the same thing, but we all know we're reading color. Okay, and so those four differences, there you can see it again. But can you also see that it's not four different spelling changes, it's just one change from an Omicron or from, from an omega to an omicron, those two are also omicrons. So they count that as four differences, but it's really just one letter, okay? And it doesn't really change the meaning. I'll show you, if we look at three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, and ten, these are grammatical differences, so let's pick one out. 
Okay. Um, let's look at four, five, six. Those are all the same. If you look at them, they point to something that's missing. Okay. They are missing this little omicron with the uh, wrong way around apostrophe on it. Okay. In the Greek, that's the definite article. That's the. All right. So these sentences here, now or there, they're missing the the. Okay. This word after the the is only begotten. Now, how many only begottens can you have? <laughs> okay. And so technically, I don't have to say the only begotten. That's sort of superfluous because there is only one. Okay. So only begotten will do. And so these guys just left it off because it was extra. Now, it could be that this is a more formal way to use the grammar. Later on, they were m more formal in using the definite article, or it could be that they started leaving it off because they felt it was extra. Does it change the meaning of the text? Can you still understand what John would have said in the original? Okay, here's another one. This is word order, if you look at number 18. Okay. Eorokin in this one is first. Right? And then, Phobate. Okay? Then here, the author turned it around. Now, to say in the Greek, the, in, in English, the meaning of the sentence is determined somewhat with where the, um, where the words are. So if I say, Jimmy kicked Johnny, I can't just say, Johnny kicked Jimmy. That actually changes the meaning of the sentence. Who kicked who? Okay? But in the Greek, what the word stands for is actually, whether it's the subject or the object of the sentence is actually determined by the form of the word. So you can move the words around without changing. A Greek person would know which one is the subject and which one is the object, even if it was not in that order. Okay, it's not the order of the words. Right. So there are still languages today that, that do that sort of thing. They have the declensions at the end. So you learn the declensions of the word, and that's what determines its job. So the author could freely move, change the structure of the sentence without changing its meaning. So again... Both of those, or that difference there specifically, the word or the difference, it doesn't change the meaning. Okay? So when you look at that, um, here again, the definite article left out, this is a different pr proposition. That is a preposition. That's the preposition into, and this is the preposition in. It's not a major difference. It still says the same thing. In the bosom of the Father. Okay, the one who was in the bosom. Okay, and so um, the majority of these differences are of no consequence for the meaning of the text, and that is the case with the two hundred thousand as well. In fact, to sort of make you a little bit uncomfortable and make you think that my session was really important, I actually left out part of Ehrman's quote. He says this. Most of these differences are completely immaterial and insignificant. A good portion of them simply show us that the scribes in antiquity could spell no better than most people can do today. <laughs> or further on, he says this, This is not a dispute between scholars who think the text has been altered and those who think it has not. Everyone knows that the text has been changed. The only question is which reading represents the alteration and which represents the earliest attainable form of the text. Here, scholars sometimes disagree. In a remarkable number of instances, most of them actually, scholars by and large agree. So even Ehrman has to admit that most of these differences are sort of immaterial to the meaning of the text. Now, it would be wrong to say for us, cast closed. Because there are instances where the difference has an influence on the meaning where the variant is significant, okay? So, and where that is, is the difference between what mine said and what yours said. That happens here. 40, 15, 14, 13, and 12. You see them here? Okay. This is actually two different words. The top six say monogenes, theos, only begotten, God. Okay? The bottom four say monogenes, huios, only begotten son. Okay, and that's the difference. Now again, it's not really four differences. One word that's different, but it occurs in four instances. Okay, and so 
this, this could be a bit of an issue. Is it only begotten God or is it only begotten Son? And I'm going to use the rest of our time to show you how biblical critics make that decision. Okay? So the first thing we're going to do is we're going to determine the variance. Now, when you, if you take in a Greek New Testament, Mel was kind, he lent me his. The page looks something like this. Here is the Greek text that these scholars, bless their hearts, have come up with after looking at the most important manuscripts. It means they've got to go through the process of reading all that old stuff, sitting in those dusty rooms, okay, looking at where the differences are. They compare the manuscripts, and this is what they have come up with. Okay? This is, according to them, the most reliable version of the text. But because they had to make some decisions about which variant they were going to go with, were they going to go with God or were they going to go with Son, they want to disclaim that process to you. And so what you have at the bottom here is what we call the textual apparatus. So in here, they show you which manuscript supports which reading, and they try and give you a reason for why they made the choice for one or the other. Okay. And so to just sort of stop for a moment and say it's an incredibly complicated, not, not complicated, but a, 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 an incredibly precise, detailed process. It's not just as if they go, oh, we'll pick that one because that suits our purposes. Okay? We have to work with all of these manuscripts and judge them to the best of our ability. Um, and it takes people literally all of their working lives to do this sort of thing. And they're perfectly willing to, and this to me is important, to put these disclaimers here, to be open about what it is they've done and why they've done it. So you can go and look at it and decide whether or not you agree. So this is, for example, the um, United Biblical Society, um, their Greek New Testament. So they had a bunch of scholars who looked at the manuscripts. This is what they came up with. Now, you know that bottom bit that I told you, um, the textual apparatus? That's what, it's look, what it looks like. Now, if you look at that at first, you think, what on earth? And why do I need to know that as a, as a lay person? But it's actually really fascinating when you start... Um, Looking at it, so here are our variants. Um, this is monogenesis, only begotten God, the only begotten God, the only begotten Son, um, only begotten Son of God, and then one guy decided we'll just go with only begotten. Never mind about only begotten who, okay? And so how I know that those are the variants, if you see the bits that I've underlined in red, so the first thing they show you is that these are the different variants we looked at, okay? So you'll see them there in the Greek. And then they list all of the manuscripts. Remember those black peas and owls and things I told you they were going to be important? Now I know. This is Papyrus 66. Papyrus 66 has this version in it. Um, Alpha Star has that version in it. Okay, all the way. And then they put a double forward slash. And then there's the next one. Okay, this one says, The Only Begotten God. And these are all of the manuscripts, and there you see the church fathers from their quotations, the church fathers who quote, and in their quotations use only begotten God. So do you see how it actually makes sense? They're telling you exactly which manuscripts had which version, okay, of the uh, of, of that. So this one is the only begotten son, okay? All of these manuscripts here have only begotten son. These are all uncials and magiscals. And there's the lectionaries. Remember the, the church readings? There they are. These ones here are the translations. There's the Syriac, Armenian, Ethiopian. Then you have the church fathers. There they are. Irenaeus, Clement, Origen, um, all of them through there. And then there's the, the third, third one. Doesn't have much support. And the fourth one, even less. Okay, So they show you which manuscripts they look at. Now, in the case of the UBS, the, the, ones, um, the one right at the beginning is the one that they chose, the one that they decided to go with. Okay? And this little thing here, the B, they, wrote, they, they um, sort of weigh the certainty with which they do it um, by letter. So if they say A, it means they are 100% certain that this is what the original text says. If they say D, then it means they're not sure at all about what to do here. Okay, so they give it a B, and we'll talk a little bit more about 
Why in this verse? So they've decided to go with the translate, if you translate, only begotten God. Right? Which is what I have had on mind, but we didn't have a wolf. Which does not make you um, a heretic, don't worry. <laughs> we'll talk about that in just a second. The well, only begotten is Jesus. The only begotten Son is Jesus. The only begotten God is Jesus. Okay. So here's, but, but here's the problem. The critic would say, you, because there's a variant, you cannot use that, that verse to argue that Jesus is God. Because uh, there's a variance of my own name. You can't argue my existence. Okay. So, well, in, in the text. This is the text. You want to use the Bible to argue, to make the argument that Jesus is God. Okay. But this verse is in dispute. Because there are all the manuscripts who say only begotten son. And son, as traditionally understood, is something very different from God. Okay. And so, the point is, there's a difference. And Ehrman will say, this, these are the big differences. These are the ones where we now have to say, well, was Jesus God or was he just the son? Sort of the way we are all said to be sons of God in other places in the, you know, in the scriptures. And so this is when the textual criticism, textual critics' work becomes important. Those spelling differences and those word order differences, you know, they don't matter as much. But this is. Now let me say, here, I think Ehrman is, in, in many of these um, issues of the variants where the, the difference becomes more important, okay? Scholars would tell you this. None of them ultimately influences one of our central doctrines. Why is that? Because even if we removed that verse out of the scriptures, there are other verses that show the deity of Christ in which there are no variants. Take Matthew 28, for example, when Jesus says, go and make disciples, baptize them in the name of the... Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. There's your Trinity. There's, there's Jesus. You, you have in the, same, in the same passage in John 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. No dispute about that. So we don't need this verse. Okay? Um, and so in, in most of the cases where, in most cases where the difference is significant, because this is a significant difference, the difference between God and Son. If this was all we had on the nature of Jesus, we would have been in trouble. But it's not all that we have. And so you have to take the scriptures as, as a whole. But it's still an interesting question. Which one, which one did John put there originally? Okay, so to sort of remove the worry and the doubt, you'll say, no, this doesn't influence the doctrine. But if we want to be responsible with the scriptures, and if we want to make sure that, that um, we can't be accused of just changing the scriptures the way it, they suit us to, to make our theological points, we want to say, where um, scripture determines our doctrine, not our doctrine determines scripture, okay, then we have to be open about this and we have to put up for discussion and say, let's see, you know, which one should it be? So in the two minutes that I have left, I'm going to tell you how they do it. What they do is basically they take, they use external evidence and internal evidence. Okay? The external evidence, they take all of those manuscripts and they arrange them according to their manuscript families. Where are they found? Some are found in North, Northern Africa, Alexandria and Egypt. Some are found West toward Europe and some are found in the Byzantine Empire and then in other regions, sort of these manuscript families. Manuscripts that are all found in a certain area usually have the same writings in them. You can understand that. They disseminated in that area, and the ones coming from this area, you know, if a mistake was made, it was likely to be copied in the area that it was circulated, not necessarily all. You couldn't change all of them at the same time. It happened in sort of these different areas, so you have families. So they basically arrange these manuscripts according to families. If a variant is the good one, the original one that you want to go for, then ideally what you want to see is that there are um, manuscripts from all the different areas that have this in. It means it has a wide geographical spread. Okay? That variant was found in many different places. So it was likely that that was the original because it's the one that went everywhere. Now, as you can see here, with the one that says... Um, homogeneus, monogeneus theos, only begotten God, it doesn't really have that. 
most of the, the manuscripts that have it are Alexandrian. What gives them an edge is that these are the really old ones. That's a papyrus. That's a very old one. And some of the very old unseals have that as well. So what it has in its favor is that it has old manuscripts. Of course, all the manuscripts are closer to the original, so the thinking goes. It's not such a big chance. Of the, but it's not very widely spread. Now, if you go to Only Begotten Son, it has a bit more of a spread. There's something in almost every box there. But it doesn't have the really old manuscripts. Okay. So I would say in this instance, the external evidence is inconclusive. You can't really tell externally which one you know, should be used. Um, the one was prevalent here, the other one was prevalent there, and so external evidence doesn't help us much. In some instances, it can be really telling. If there's a variant that only has one or two manuscripts in one column and the other one has manuscripts all over the place, old and young, then obviously you're going to go with the one with the big ge geographical spread. Now, can you see how it's a science? Because, yes, there's sense in the rule that more places it was found, more likely it was the right one. But it's also an art because it's not necessarily the case. You've got to consider other factors. Now, if the, if the external evidence is inconclusive, what do they do then? Well, then they go internally, and they go and look at the actual text, and we say, um, what were scribal habits and practices, and what is the style and the vocabulary of the author? So, how does John write? The question we ask ourselves. And we're also looking at it, and we're saying about the difference, what could possibly have happened here? If I was a scribe, how could, what sort of mistake could be made? Okay, now, sometimes scri scribes make intentional um, changes. So like the spelling. The spelling of the word has changed from the omega to the omicron, and so now when the scribe rises, he sees, oh, this is the old spelling of the word. People now use it this way, and he changes the word accordingly so that his people can read the thing. Or maybe historical corrections. The city was known by this name, but now the city is known by this name, and so that his readers know what the city's name is, he changes it. It's not that he changes the story, he just makes it more accessible for his readers. And so those are intentional. So, or they change it to something that is grammatically superior. I said that it probably became um, more grammatically correct to put the definite article in front of only begotten. And so that's why you see that changes later on. They wanted to be good, good grammarians. Um, and so you have Conflation, elimination of discrepancies or doctrinal changes, I think that uh, it, there's a likelihood that if a doctrine was difficult or a doctrine seemed to be incriminating against Christianity or a doctrine was against the beliefs of a scribe, there's always the temptation to go ahead and to change the text according to what you liked. And so if you'd have to do research into the history. Were there theological disputes? And was it likely that scribes might have been told to change it in favor of one person over another, okay? So those are the things that you look at for intentional changes. Unintentional changes are those mistakes that Ehrman was talking about, you know? So, for example, you remember those, um, those manuscripts that I said to you were written in that capital form with the words all together, no spaces? How easy to make a mistake in that? You're supposed to read... Um, uh, you have to think of a... You're supposed to read one word, but you read the previous letter on it and you get the wrong word. Or sometimes they would sit in these big rooms and they, um, the, the, the scriptures were just dictated to them and they were writing. You could easily mishear. So, theos, huios. It's not that big of a difference. They, own, they both end with the eos, eos sound. Okay? And so the scribe could have misheard. And that's how the, the error comes in. Or errors of memory. So, the scribe has read the other letters of John or has heard the letter of John written, and somewhere else he's heard only begotten son. And so now the person in front says only begotten God, but he's got only begotten son in mind, and it writes it down. Have you ever done that? You're typing something on the computer, and when you're done, you're like, why did I put that there? It's, not, it's completely the wrong way, because you were thinking of eggs while you were typing your thing, and the word egg got in there, type of thing. Same type of error. So we can look at those, and we can say, well, is this a possibility? And then, of course, you look at... Um, you look at the author's writing now. In the case of John, we're fortunate. We have more letters written by John. We have the gospel and then the three epistles. So if I had to say, after this research, looking at it, and it's, I'm certainly not dogmatic about it, I don't think there's a way, certainly the external evidence doesn't show it. There's no one variant that has overwhelming manuscript evidence. 
Um, I don't think there's a very good um, intentional scribal change or even accidental scribal change explanation for it. I think what for me is determining is the fact that John uses the word only begotten several times throughout his other writings and he always uses it as only begotten son. Okay? And so if I had to make a call, I would actually go against the guys of the UBS text here. <coughs> they choose, oh, there it is, only begotten God. But for me, after looking at where the manuscripts come from, how old they are, and considering the Greek and the, you know, the, the sound and how, what the possible errors could be, <coughs> I think it's more likely to be only begotten son. Now, does it make a difference to my doctrine? No, because I don't build my belief in the deity of Christ on this verse alone. Okay. And what's interesting, I looked at that and I thought, oh, you know, I'm going against all of these Greek scholars. So I went, along with this comes a little book with the explanation, and I went into it, and it's actually interesting. There is one of the scholars who distances himself from that, gives this one a D, and says, no, I prefer that one, because of the internal evidence, the style of John. And I'm like, oh, <laughs> I'm not alone. I, and so, what, why, why even talk about this? Well, because what I want to tell you is that this is an incredible process. This is an, a process which should give us about the minutest differences. They put so much effort into it. And so, we can take great courage we can, we, can, we can really excel or we can, we can really sort of exalt the uniqueness and the incredible preservation of our scriptures over thousands of years. It's of all these variants, all the 200,000 variants, there are only about 1% of them that really change the meaning. Okay, That's nothing comparison to the text. And in those cases, one of this one I showed you today would be considered one that has a significant variant. And even in that case, we can grapple with it. We are open with why we make a decision. It's not disclosed. We can, you can go and, if you want to dig up these manuscripts yourself, you can go and organize them and see how, how they fit. And so it's this beautiful open process that should give us much confidence in the text that we have. So what do we do about it? We need to pray for and support text critical work. We should pray for the people who do this, the people who have just found these new manuscripts and now have to go through them and compare. Um, there is something called the Green Scholars Initiative. You know the people from Hobby Lobby? Um, they make it their aim to buy old manuscripts and protect them. It costs thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars. So in the simple sense of going to Hobby Lobby instead of something else to buy my fabric for quilting, I can actually be supporting biblical scholarly work. They put them on the roadshow. They take these manuscripts around to show people what they look like. Okay? That's good work. We can support those sort of things. If there are young people in your church who have an affinity for language and who can do these things, why not support somebody in a scholarship to go to seminary, study these things, and become one of the people, one of these textual critics? Okay? Read more than one translation of the Bible. And look out for these footnotes. Be excited about them. Don't be scared of them. They are good things. Use verses with significant variants wisely in evangelism and teaching. For example, 1 John 5, 7 and 8. The King James Version translates that as Father, Son and Spirit. The original says Father, Blood and Water. The oldest manuscripts say that. If you use a King James Version of the Bible with the Muslims, they will take you to that verse immediately. They all know about it, and they'll say to you, this is not what the original manuscripts say. Okay? So, when I go and evangelize Muslims, I don't take a King James Version of the Bible with me to avoid that issue. Should it come up, I'll say, yes. I don't think that the King James Version is the most accurate translation here. I don't think it's heretical because we have the Trinity elsewhere. It's not if that's brand new doctrine. But I don't need 1 John 5, 7 to show you the Trinity. I can show it to you in other places. But to avoid that issue, because I want to ultimately share the, the gospel with Muslim and not get stuck in a text of critical issue, I'll be wise and I won't, I'd rather take my NASB or my ESV or my NIV. And so if we're more aware of these issues, we can avoid those sorts of discussions, not because we don't think we have enough evidence, but because we want to get to Jesus. Um, and that can just be red herrings. 
And then lastly, thank God for his word and the preservation thereof for millennia. It's incredible that we are still finding these things. I see his hand of providence in that. And then, of course, read, study, and proclaim it with the diligence that it deserves. If these people spend so much time on this, then the very least I can do to show them my respect is to actually read it, study it, the rest of it. All right, well, that was a very cryptic. If you want to read more, if there's one book that I can, that will explain this probably better than I did, it's only 50 pages long, David Allen Black, The New Testament Textual Criticism, a concise guide. He writes this for the layman. He says everybody in the church needs to understand how this works. That's an awesome little book. Part of the reason why I did this talk is I thought if he thinks it's important, then I think we should talk about it. Okay. Thank you for your time. Thank you. <laughs> it was a little bit like drinking from a fire hydrant. <laughs> he, he called me in the last 15 minutes.